Romans 7, beginning in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not (coughs) practicing that which I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God. But on the other with my flesh, (coughs) the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for just this honest testimony that you've given us in your word of Paul and and his, um, his experience. His walking with you and the struggle that was there. And the hope, Lord, as well. And God, we pray that, that you would just stir our hearts with the truth and how you have designed us to live in Christ. That our hearts would be strengthened, Father, that we would live to the glory of God by the life that you have given us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Patsy and I spent um, the weekend, two, two weekends ago in Nevada, northwestern Nevada, I think it was, or northeastern, never been to Nevada before, very dry, and uh, I came back with some kind of, my mom would call it epizooty, so I had my voice gone for a while, and I'm still kind of hacking and coughing a little bit, so I'll drink a little bit of water from time to time. And um, been busy since we've been back, we got back a day later than we expected because the flight crew didn't show up. So they had to put us, um, the airline put us up in a casino in, in um, Elko, Nevada. It's the only hotel that has um, shuttle service um, was a casino hotel. So anyway, that was interesting. And we got back in time to welcome our exchange student new daughter from Brazil, Rachel. She's taking Audrey's place this next year. <laughs> I'm teasing, she's not. Um, nobody can take Audrey's place. Anyway, it's great to be back. I appreciate Vincent, I'm sorry, Jeff and um, Gerald standing in for me. Um, I know they always do a capable job. And um, we're, we're back at, at chapter 7 of Romans. And, and again, very important portion of Scripture. If you remember from three weeks ago, we looked at the first half of Romans chapter 7. And, and I think here what Paul's doing is, is in the first half of chapter 7, he's just building off again of verse 14 of chapter 6. So you recall in that verse, For sin shall not be master over you, 
for you are not under law, but under grace. And then he's going, he gives two illustrations to try and, and clarify what he's saying. An illustration of a master-slave relationship, the end of chapter 6. The illustration of a marriage relationship at the, at the beginning of chapter 7. And in both cases, he says, you know, as a master-slave, you're the slave. The master is the sin nature. And it's not going to die. You've got to die. And then the marriage relationship. You're married to not the law, as it were. You're married to the sin nature. And again, the sin nature is not going to go away. It's not going to die. And so according to the law, somebody's got to die. And that somebody's not going to be the sin nature. And so in Christ, as we put our faith in Him, we die with Christ. We die. Not it, not the sin nature, but we die. But in that whole process, he tried to very strongly, and I think he does, make the point that the problem in the marriage is not the law. Even though the law says you've got to stay married, the problem isn't the law. And he very, very emphatically says the law, look at verse 12, is holy. And the commandment, this is chapter 7, verse 12, the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But the problem is, the law doesn't help me live the Christian life. It points me in the right direction, tells me what I'm supposed to do, but provides no help whatsoever when it comes to living the Christian life. So the law, in a sense, is like a compass. And that compass will tell me where north is, but that compass won't get me to north. It won't help me get there. All it does is orient me in the right direction. And I can, not, I can say, I don't like north. Or I don't like this compass because it always points me north and never helps me get to north. The problem is not the compass. The problem is not the law. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. But it's not sufficient for living the Christian life. And so really I think here in chapter 7, as he blends this together, he's saying that we have to die. The it of the sin nature is not going to die. The problem is not the law. The law is insufficient for living the Christian life. You can have a perfect law, and we do in the Old Testament, 613 laws. The Ten Commandments, ten of those being being the embodiment uh, of it. And then what we know, Jesus in summarizing it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And, And as good as these things are, there's never been a more perfect law that's been handed down. The law is not going to make you godly. It doesn't have the power to help us do what is right. All it can do is declare what is right. It can reveal what is right. But it cannot make us right. It takes something else. The law is inadequate for that. There is a second thing, which we are are predisposed to think, if I can just respond to this, then everything is going to be right, and I should be living the Christian life as God intended. The first is the law, and the second is the new nature. Both are inadequate for living the Christian life. I cannot live the life that God intends me by simply living according to the law. Because the law is not going to help me. In fact, all the law ends up doing is condemning me. And secondly, I cannot live the Christian life simply in response to the new nature that God has put within me. And that's beginning in verse 14. So, there is a bondage to the old nature and to the law. But the law is good, the law is spiritual, the law provokes sin, and the law is no help against sin. 
Look at verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. Now, I've been noting as we've gone through Romans here, particularly in, in chapter 6, and I think Paul's continuing the same thought here in, in chapter 7, Paul is not using flesh, per se, in re, as, as a reference to the sin nature. But he's using flesh as a reference to my humanity, all that I am, apart from God. And so simply he's saying the law is spiritual in that the law has its origin from God, who is spirit. But me, as a human being, I was born separate from God and and not with God. In my humanity, I am flesh. And I am not spiritual. I had to be born again, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, before I can be called spiritual. But in my humanity apart from God, merely flesh, in distinction from the law, which is from God and therefore spiritual. And in my flesh... In my humanity, I am in bondage to sin. Now, a thing to note here about this passage, the big debate is, is Paul talking about his experience before he was a Christian or after he became a Christian? I believe he's speaking about as a Christian, after he was saved. For the one reason, every single reference to himself here is in the present tense. Nothing is in the past tense. And there is nothing contextually here to tell us that Paul is reversing now and talking about a pre-conversion experience. There's another reason why I take this to be present tense and not pre-conversion. And that is because Paul tells us quite strongly in this paragraph that he joyfully, present tense, joyfully concurs with the law of God in the inner man. That he likes what God's word says. That is not the testimony of an unbeliever. In fact, Paul's already argued in the first three chapters of Romans that the unbeliever, and he's going to come back to it in Romans chapter 8, the unbeliever, his intentions of his heart is toward evil continually. Not that he's always thinking of bad things to do, but he's, always, he's simply living from himself. And it's always a self-orientation. And it is not an orientation that is, that is first from God. And so that is not... The orientation of an unbeliever to say, Man, I love God's Word. And I joyfully concur with what God's Word says. God's Word says that I am dead apart from Him. And we say, as an unbeliever, Amen. God's Word says that apart from saving grace, apart from putting my faith in Christ, I am destined to an eternity separated from God. And as an unbeliever, we go, Man, that's good news. I love reading that. You see, that's not the case. And so we come to the word as unbelievers and we try to take the clear statements of Scripture and make them say anything other than what they say. But as a believer, even though we may not, on the one hand, say, you know, this, I don't like the think, thought that people are going to spend an eternity separated from God. Yet our spirits tell us, this is right. This is true. And our inner man concurs with what God's law says. And so when Paul says in the present tense, these things are true of me. And he also says, I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I think he's talking about his present experience as a Christian. Another observation as we read through this paragraph. No mention of the Spirit of God. That's important. And that helps to understand the struggle that he's talking about. There is not a single mention of the Spirit's activity within the Christian in this paragraph. No wonder. 
there's a struggle. Another observation. This is not a stage of Christian immaturity. What Paul is describing here in this paragraph is something that can be true of any Christian, any day, any time, no matter how long he has lived the Christian life. This is not something we graduate from. And if you're waiting for that day, you know, I don't think you're going to make it. I haven't, you know, and I'm, I'm uh, you know, I don't like it. But, but this is the fact that what Paul is talking about here, the potential of this struggle is something that will always be there. And so that's why, you know, if you call it, you know, if you're of the conviction of the mind, <coughs> as many believers are today, that you have no sin nature, then you're going to have to call it something. Because, man, you've got to be honest. All of us as Christians know we are only a step away from the ditch. No matter how long you've lived the Christian life, you know the temptations that are there. You know the propensities of your heart, whatever you call them. And you know you could be, have lived a Christian life for 60 years. And you still know you're just a step away from the ditch. We all are. I happen to think it's because there is a principle in us that it will never convert. It's called sin. A sin principle. It's not going to get better. It's not going to get sanctified. It's it's not going to respond to New Year's resolutions. It won't reform. It is never, never going to change. Never. These are just some basic observations. Now let's look a little bit more in detail here. Verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual. I am a flesh, (coughs) excuse me, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. Now, I like that. I don't understand why I'm doing what I'm doing. Now, Paul understands the big picture because of sin which indwells me, where he's going to come to. But understanding the particulars of it, I don't get it. Now, we just sang the last song, and I appreciate it because I... I wanted to make mention of Psalm 139, <coughs> where David prays, Search me, O Lord, search my heart. And I, and I, and I came across, in my reading, of a book by Oswald Chambers, and he talks about the, the, um, a, the right kind of introspection. And he says that, that we have to be properly introspective, which means that, that he says that, um, we pray and we ask God reveal our hearts to us because, because we can't on our own. He says we, are, we cannot fully know ourselves. We are inscrutable, but we are so built <coughs> that we must introspect. But then he says introspection without God leads to insanity because we're never going to understand. I've been reading another book. I won't even tell you the title of it because you'll be worried about me. Someday maybe I will when I finish the book. Fascinating read. And this guy is going into the, the whys of why we do what we do. Initially, the first half of the book from a purely secular, clinical perspective. And then he very slowly moves over to the biblical perspective. And I have been finding it fascinating. And it follows into what he's saying here, what Paul's going to get to. And in one chapter he, talks, he calls a cluster of influences. And all of these things are true in making us the kind of people that we are. There are biological influences. 
There are sociological influences. There are psychological influences. There are hormonal influences. There are family influences. There are traumas. There are prenatal influences, postnatal influences, and there is simple choice. Now, you figure all that out. Nobody can. This is why it makes no sense in counseling to go back and try and figure out everything that happened to you in your early childhood as an explanation for why you're doing what you're doing today. Because a lot of what you may be doing may be because of hormones that you were, that you were um, exposed to in your mother's womb. Maybe too much of this or too little of that. It may be, I've, I've had different students that have come through Hill, a couple of them I can think of through the Bible school. They simply just didn't get enough oxygen at birth. And it has terribly hurt them, affected how they think, the choices that they make. Amazing. And there are so many different things that influence us. We will never, ever, ever be able to figure it all out. How this little bit of that and this little bit of something else and all of this is mixed together to make me the kind of person that I am today. And throw into it choice? You go, it's a loss. We are not going to understand. No wonder the psalmist says, search me, O God, because I can't know my own heart. It is deceitful. It is, it, 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 it is not going to be fully known by anybody other than God. But the thing is, even if I were to fully know my heart and why I do the things that I do, the answer is still going to be the same. I need Jesus. You think about it. If I could know myself perfectly, I still would need a Savior because I can't fix myself. Only Christ can. And then this author goes on, and, and he, <coughs> as Paul, and I, I'm kind of wrestling with how much, you know, to just to, to, how to how to organize this, but this author goes on, he says, we have to understand, this guy who, who's, who's clinical in, in his approach to all this, and, he, and as he moves it on and deals with it biblically, sin, we have to recognize, is defined by God, not by nature. And he has some just some just simple but yet profound things to say. He says, if we were to ask the question, what is the matter with you? We're living at a time when people would say they're always looking for the different influences. And at a time, particularly when it, turn, when it comes to sexual orientation, it was just the way I was born. I was born with a nature that is oriented this way. Really? If even if that's true, even if it is true that by nature I was born this way, as this author so rightly points out, as Paul is, going to, is saying here in this paragraph, it is according to nature, it is no longer unnatural to sin. The natural thing, according to a fallen nature, is to sin. The unnatural thing is to not sin. And so every orientation of the fallen man is toward what is natural and he is by nature fallen so it is toward sin and so even though the nature in me compels me perhaps in a direction that is different from somebody else in the particulars in the flavor of it 
the nature, just because it's nature doesn't mean that it's not sin. God defines sin, not natural orientation. So God says this particular orientation is ungodly. A heterosexual orientation apart from God is still not what God intends for it to be. And so it'll be abused. There'll be fornication, adultery, incest, all kinds of of (coughs) perversions of a natural heterosexual orientation. And yet nothing about it is as God intended it to be. Sin is defined by God, not by nature. Sin is therefore against the nature, is not against nature, but against God. Man resists the sin that is, that is natural to him only with the greatest of effort. He requires the guidance of the word in order to achieve even limited success. But even this is not enough. And then I like what the author says. I thought this was so profound. God made the supernatural word of God literally flesh. He thereby began the process of transforming our flesh into the word. Man, that's good. Because here this is what Paul's saying in Romans 7. The word is good. It is righteous. It is holy. It is the commandment of God. There is nothing wrong with the Word. And Jesus Christ, who is the living, personal Word of God, has come into this world in order to take my flesh and transform it into complete harmony with the Word of God. And so the answer is not to to redefine God's Word or to dismiss God's Word or or to say it's cultural, but to understand Jesus, the Word, came into this life in order to take my flesh and bring me, transform me into conformity with His Word. Sin is so natural to us and we are so utterly helpless and unable to resist it by our own power that that we inevitably either deny that we sin or or we must depend upon God even to know what we need to know to begin to resist it. And if God chooses not to help us, we are lost. And that's where Paul's going with this. That sin is so natural to us, I can't even begin to resist it. And if God doesn't save me, then I am lost. Look at verse 15. For that which I am doing, I do not understand. (coughs) For I'm not practicing, I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. This is good stuff. This is honesty. If you hear a Christian say, I don't struggle with sin anymore, they are lying to you. Or, in the words of Oswald Chambers, they have entered into complete darkness. Listen to what Chambers says about that. He says, darkness is my own point of view. When once I allow the prejudice of my head to shut down the witness of my heart, I make my heart dark. See, my heart says, it is sin. My head says, it's just a tendency. It's just a weakness. It's just a predisposition. It's just because of the way that I was raised. And I try to rationalize and minimize what God calls sin. And I don't listen to my heart, and my heart 
and my mind become dark. It is possible to choke the witness of the heart by the prejudice of the head. A darkened heart is a terrible thing because a darkened heart may make a man peaceful. Paul is not writing as a peaceful man. He is writing as a man in turmoil because the thing that he wishes to do, he does not do. He is, this is not peace, folks. And that's a good thing. God doesn't make peace with sin. And if I start making peace with sin, then God is not ruling over my life. When God's ruling over my life, I will hate what God hates and I will love what God loves. And God hates sin. And he hates sin in me. Paul's not living peace. Something's not right. When Christians acquiesce in the face of sin and just give up and just say, this is just the way it's going to be. In fact, I'm not even sure it's sin anymore. We just quit the struggle. The struggle is a sign of life. It's a sign of health. Verse 16. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, two things are true. I, can, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. That's the first thing. And secondly, it's not me doing it. It is something else. It is sin which indwells me. Because again... Paul's saying, we've got to get back here to our spiritual identity. The most vital thing, the truest aspect of who you are, is who you are spiritually. And either you are spiritually in union with God, through faith in Jesus Christ, or you are spiritually separate from God, because you have never entered into a personal relationship with Him. It's not about your metaphysical reality of what you like, what your education is, what your life experiences are, where you went to school, all the things that you've accomplished. It's not about your physical reality, how tall, how short, how wide, how skinny. How, that, none of that matters. What matters is what, who you are spiritually, either in union with Christ or separated from Him. And Paul says, sin is not who I am. I am a child of God. Do, do, do I sin? Yes. Am I a sinner? Yes. And I know sometimes you'll hear Christians say, don't even call yourself a sinner. Paul called himself a sinner. In one place he said, I am the foremost, the chief of all sinners. And again, he uses the present tense. And so, so there is a sense to where I am a sinner because I sin. But that is not my identity before God. In Christ, I am the righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin that I might become the righteousness of God in him. So this is not me. This is why, and I, I've tried to be so clear with this in different students that, I, that, I, that I've spent time with over the years <coughs> and other people as well. You may have an, an, a, an obsession an addiction, a compulsion in your life that you feel is so dominant that it characterizes everything that you do. I don't deny that that is possible for a Christian. But I also see that according to God's Word, that is not who you are. It may be what you are dominated by. It may be what is defeating you. It may be what occupies virtually every thought that you have, every waking moment, and even while you're sleeping. 
But God's word says that is not who you are. God doesn't have hyphenated Christians. A Christian who is an alcoholic, an alcoholic Christian, a homosexual Christian. You are a Christian. You are a child of God. And maybe you're in bondage to alcohol. Maybe you're in bondage to homosexuality. Whatever it would be. God says that is not your identity if you are a child of God. Your identity is not in what you do. It's not in your behavior. But it is in who you are related to. And if you are related to the Son of God, then you've been born again by the Spirit of God. You are a new creature in Christ. And that is not your identity. It may be your problem. It is not your identity. So now, verse 17, (coughs) No longer am I the one (coughs) doing it, but sin which indwells me. Now, he's moving into another thing here, where he says, I am of flesh, I desire to do what is good, the wishing is present in me, he's going to say, he says, but the one that what's making me do this, what is, what is the compelling orientation of my life, and again, no mention of the Spirit, is sin which is in me. And the point that he's going to make here is, again, Sin is, look what it says in verse 18. The sin is in my flesh, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I am doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. So twice now, sin dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And then we come down to verse 23, where he says, he, um, um, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So sin is in me. Sin is in my flesh. Sin is in my members. <coughs> it's not three different locations for sin. So again, if I only looked at the one... Sin is in my flesh. Even that, he is making a distinction between flesh and sin in this use of flesh. So he's not saying that flesh here is sin. He is saying that sin is in the flesh. So he's speaking of flesh as our humanity. Sin is in me. Sin is in my members. You see, all of it is saying the same thing. Sin is something separate from my flesh. And he's not saying that it's my physical body. If that were the case, then shorter people ought to sin less. Right? Because we've got less flesh. That's not true, I guarantee you. Or people that have lost limbs ought to sin sin less. Every time you lose a finger, you sin less. No, that's not the case. We know that it is not our bodies which make us sin. But there is sin which is in our flesh. Sin which is in our humanity. He's describing sin as as something separate from us, which indwells us. It is an entity in and of itself. And even though I was crucified with Christ, this wasn't. I died. This thing didn't. It's still there. That's Paul's point. And as long as it's there, I'm going to be defeated. Because the fact of the matter is, 
the sin orientation, because it is in me and works through all that my humanity is, it has a greater power over me than the new nature which God has given me, which desires and longs and joyfully concurs with the law of God. The sin nature pitted against the new nature wins every time. So what are we to do? And this is where the one nature um, uh, proponents argue against the two nature proponents because there's oftentimes been this terrible illustration that's been used. Old nature wars against new nature. Old nature always wins. What do you do to help out the new nature? And there's been an old illustration that said, well, it's like two dogs fighting. Which dog's going to win? And the illustration is the one that you feed. So starve the sin nature, feed the new nature, and the new nature will win. Terrible illustration. Because you can't starve the old nature. You can't starve the sin nature. It lives on its own. If you were to take everything that was sinful out of the sin nature's life, this sin nature would remain unchanged. That's a fact. That's why monks, man, the monks would go live out in the desert and they'd still sin. And it's just amazing. You know, they'd be sin because Brother Monk got two more beans than I got to eat. You know, and they coveted their beans. That they were sinning even in the monastery. Because sin is in us. <coughs> the second part of it is, the new nature doesn't need to be fed. Just as the old nature doesn't need to be fed, doesn't need to be starved, the new nature doesn't need to be fed. Because the new nature is new. It only has one orientation. It'll always have only one orientation. It's like that compass doesn't need help pointing north. A nature is an orientation. A sin nature is always oriented toward sin. And a new nature is always oriented toward God. Nothing is going to change those orientations. So it's pointless to talk about feeding one and starving the other. Terrible illustration. And so Paul's not saying, what should I do? I know, memorize more scripture and that will feed the new nature and the new nature will win. It's not going to happen. And this memorizing scripture is a great thing. Go into church. Read your Bibles. Tell people about Jesus. You can do all the spiritual things you want. It is not going to help the new nature defeat the old nature. The old nature is going to win. If it's new nature against old nature, the old nature will win every time. That's what Paul's saying here. I continue to do the very things I hate. The things I don't want to do. Sin keeps winning. When is it going to stop? The wishing's present in me, the doing is not. Evil is present in me, <coughs> sin is present in me, all of these things. So here's some conclusions to what he's saying. Because he gets down to the conclusion here in verse 24 and 25. Look, we'll just read them and then we'll make, I'll make the conclusions. Wretched man that I am. That should be the cry of all of our hearts. And it shouldn't be our spouse having to point it out to us. If we are at all, if we have a monochrome of sensitivity to the Spirit of God and to the Word of God, if there is a shred of honesty in us, then the cry ought to be the same. Wretched, wretched, vile, despicable, 
man that I am. It's one person who said, this is the most spiritual and the most scriptural cry that a man can utter. And I'm telling you, you will never come close to salvation until you see this is you. And you cry out, God, I'm a wretch. I am a vile, wretched man. And you cry out to God, who will set me free? And I love the first word of that question, who? There is no what capable. Because sin dwells in me. That means I need a solution totally outside of myself. If willpower could change me, if willpower could give me victory over sin, then Paul should have been free from sin. Because he willed it. The wishing was present, but the doing was not. There was nothing from within. No amount of determination. If you can, by your own sheer willpower, deliver yourself from any sin, then Jesus died needlessly. I can suppress it. I, I, can, I can live well enough that you would never believe that Charlie McCall had that problem. But all I've done, man, is by the force of my will is push it down so that when you're around, I don't behave the way that I'm not supposed to behave. But it is still in me. And given the right set of circumstances, the right opportunity, and I don't have any fear of consequence, it will come out again. Because if I am at all honest, I know it is in me. You may not be seeing it, but it is there. That's what Paul's saying. And I have to have a Savior. It is a person, a personal Savior. I need Him personally, and I need Him to be a person. Because if it is dependent upon anything I have to do, it's not going to happen. You see? This is why, who? So it's, 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 it's a cry of humility, a cry of desperation, cry of honesty, <coughs> a cry of weakness. Who will help me? Because I can't help myself. God does not help those who help themselves. He helps those who cry out, wretched, Man that I am, who, who will set me free from the body of this death? We're told that in the Roman culture that one of the things they would do to, to criminals that they especially had a hard time with, and they really wanted to make their deaths miserable, is that they would actually take <coughs> a corpse, <coughs> I suppose the corpse of someone that they had murdered, and strap that rotten, maggot-infested corpse to them. Until all the rottenness of the corpse rotted away the flesh of the one who had committed the crime. And they died. And that's the cry that he's making. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from the body of this death? And then he gives his answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. All of chapter 8 is going to be about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. There is no mention of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in chapter 7. 
You know why the new nature is defeated by the old nature? Because God wants us to know the new nature is not sufficient for living the Christian life. Just as the law is not sufficient for living the Christian life. They are both good. They are both from God. The problem's not the law and the problem's not the new nature. I need God for living the Christian life. Real quickly, if you'll turn back to Ezekiel chapter 36, it was one of the passages that speak of the new covenant and what God gives us with that covenant. Ezekiel 36, <coughs> and beginning in verse 26. Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you. That speaks of the new nature. I am going to give you a new nature when you're saved. A new orientation. But he doesn't stop. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. But what else does he give us? Verse 27. And... I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and according to my and be careful to observe my ordinances. The new nature, verse 26, comes to us by virtue of the new covenant. Put your faith in Christ and God gives you a new heart, a new spirit. That is a new nature, a new orientation, but it is not sufficient for living the Christian life. Knowing the right thing to do, desiring, wishing the right thing to do are not enough. I have to have God's indwelling spirit. That's why not only does he give me the new nature, but he also gives me himself. I will put my spirit within you. And then I will cause you to walk in my statutes, to walk in my ways. God is the cause. God is the agent. God is the dynamic Of the Christian life. It will never be my willpower. Never be my desires. And even though there is in me this set of desires. That longs to be pleasing to God. And to live in a way that I am not in bondage to sin. That in itself is not enough. All that is going to do is frustrate me. Unless. Unless. I begin to know Christ himself. And the power of his life as I hand myself over to Him. Oswald Chambers says that if we simply hand ourselves over (coughs) to Christ and to His redemptive power, we need never experience the terrible possibilities that lie within each of our hearts if we hand ourselves over to Him. No person, no human being has ever defeated any sin Jesus is the Savior from sin. The reason for the conflict is a Christian living from his new desire, his new orientation, and not living from Christ. And again, that conflict is always going to be there. But the defeat doesn't need to be. Because I can move from defeat to victory if I live from Christ is I hand myself over to Him. And I'm telling you, it's a lot of time. Patsy and I have an ongoing thing. I drive, she navigates, and we both get lost. (laughs) Drives me up a wall. I hate it. We spent 45 minutes yesterday after a two-hour drive trying to find where we were supposed to be. And I'm just thinking... 
I don't, I, do I strangle her? Do I get out and take a long walk? I am so, and I'm going, someday I will no longer, and I'm getting ready to preach this sermon. Someday I will never have this tendency again. Someday, God, you're just going to get rid of this in my life. No, he isn't. Till the day that I die, this same thing is going to have the potential of raising its head and defeating me. It's not going to go away. I will never get spiritual enough to where I am not struggling with sin. But I have a victor. And if I can turn to him and cry out to him, Jesus, I am not sufficient for this. You are. You are. Here's my life. Simply having the right desire to be patient and loving and kind and not angry is not sufficient for this battle. I've got to have something bigger than a new nature. I've got to have Jesus. We cannot deliver ourselves from sin, the sin principle. It is in us. It defeats us. It wins over the desire for good. The desire for good is not enough to defeat sin. Orientation toward God is not enough. Nowhere from within is there salvation. Nothing can help me. No thing. I need a personal Savior. A Savior who is a person. And there is hope. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is that Savior. There are three laws that are spoken of in this passage that hopefully you noted as we walk through. There was the law of God, the law of my mind, and the law of sin. The law of God is good. The law of my mind speaks of the new nature. The law of sin is the sin nature. And, and I, I will serve one or the other. We sin by nature, but nature does not define sin. God defines sin. The direction towards sin is an orientation, a compulsion. It is more than an influence, more than a tendency. It is an inescapable power, an unconquerable, unalterable disposition which rules me. In response to this reality, I have several different possibilities. I can deny that it's sin. I can rename it and call it something else, a weakness, a, 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 a lapse, a, a mistake. I can give up to it and just be defeated by it. <coughs> or I can cry out to God. For the power to do what is good. For deliverance uh, from the defeat of sin. I cry out to God. This is not merely a stage of the Christian experience. It is a potential reality throughout our lives. Defeat is normal and right. So long as we live from law or the new nature. You can take it to the bank. If you live from law, which is good. The law is good. If you live from your new nature and your new nature alone, you will walk in defeat. Take it to the bank. Neither law or new nature are adequate for living the Christian life. Both are good. Both are from God. Both are spiritual. Both orient me to God. Yet I need more than a new orientation. I need a new power. I need God, His indwelling presence, I need the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And again, the Christian life will always be a miracle of His redemption. No explanation other than Jesus in me. Anything else is really a form of idolatry. That it is Jesus in me is the only power for living this life in the way that God has saved me for it to be lived. Let me close this in prayer.